Okay, we're looking the subject, the, the subject this morning of the unique Savior and one salvation. If you look in your bulletin outline, you'll note the first point is that salvation and the Savior have to do with no partnership. I think the biggest struggle that we have in our day in presenting the gospel of grace to people is that people do not believe that they need God's grace to be saved. Either they do not believe that they are as bad off as sinners as God says that they are, or that God is so full of love as to not require perfection in obedience. In heart, they believe they are basically good, certainly capable to do good, or at least good enough to win God's favor. To help feed this error, we have preachers who present salvation as a partnership. I've heard them say things like this. God has done all that He can do to save you. Now the rest is up to you. Poor God. Poor God. He just can't quite get it done. You have to come into partnership. And the rest is up to you means your contribution. You're part of the equation. This heresy is as old as the New Testament days themselves. We're going to look at that this morning. In Acts 15, a dispute arose in the church of Antioch located in Syria, which was Paul and Barnabas' home church. And the dispute is stated by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, in these terms, Acts 15, verse 1, Some men came down from Judea, that is from Jerusalem, to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Both Paul and Barnabas did not take this lying down, but they came into sharp disagreement with these men from Judea. And so the church at Antioch decided to send a delegation verse 2, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. Oh, this, they, you know, they needed to get this settled. And we have in this the summoning of the first church council. Now normally a local church handles its own affairs within the confines of its fellowship. But this was a biggie. This was a biggie. The assertion of the Jewish constituents was reinstated when they got to the council, and it says in Acts 15, verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And the elders and the, and the apostles met to consider this question. Acts 15, verse 5 and 6. Now already you can see that there has been an escalation of the issue. At Antioch, it was unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 1. But at the council meeting, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Oh, see, things are 
progressing, and they're not going up, they're going down. The narrow brush, circumcision, has now developed into the broad brush, the entire law of Moses. And brethren, generally, this is how things go. The camel's nose, if tolerated in the flap of the tent, will result in the whole beast being inside the tent. If you don't smack the camel a good one on his nose and force him to retreat. And that's what's taken place from the time it took him to travel down from Antioch and Syria to Jerusalem for this council. The Pharisees had gotten their heads together and said, you know, it isn't just circumcision. These Gentiles need, they need to keep the whole law or they can't be saved. Now how widespread was this assertion that salvation was the result of a partnership? Yes, Christ died for sinners. Yes, a person had to believe in Christ as Savior, but along with that faith, there had to be an adherence to the law of Moses. Christ plus your obedience to the law equals salvation. We're in a partnership here. Well, Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, in that book that's called Galatians in our New Testament, the churches of Galatia think Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. He gives us the background of this dispute. After Paul's apostleship was authenticated by the other apostles in Jerusalem, and before this group arrived from Jerusalem, we read, and Paul writes this, Peter used to eat, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Galatians 2, verse 12. But then this, um, this unauthorized delegation of Jews came from Jerusalem preaching their message that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul tells us that Peter, Peter now, listen to this, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Galatians 2, verse 12 and 13. So what is going on here? Peter caved. Barnabas caved. All those believing Jews that were in that church, they caved. And what we're seeing here is a domino effect that began to corrupt all of these churches in the province of Galatia. Verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And we know that a man is not justified, is not saved by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified, no one will be saved. Galatians 2 verse 14 through 16. And guess what? Peter backed down as well he should have because he was in the wrong. 
He was sending the wrong message about salvation to the Gentile brethren. He was siding with this wrong view that one is justified or saved by faith in Christ plus obedience to the law, primarily circumcision, but not only so, the dietary laws because Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. So boy, he's just really going to, he's falling away here. Now, is this teaching Christ plus Christ and you in your obedience, this partnership idea, is this teaching a little and therefore inconsequential issue or is this a big issue? Is this just two apostles having a difference of opinion that is little more than a minor skirmish? Or is this a draw your sword to die for issue? Well, obviously the church at Antioch thought that this was a to die for issue because they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem for a hearing and a resolution of the matter. We may further understand the seriousness of the issue by listening to Paul's opening remarks in this letter to the Galatian churches. And here's what he wrote. He says, I'm astonished. I'm really flabbergasted here. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And as I've already said, let me say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. Now note how Paul labels this message of the Judaizers who taught that one cannot be saved unless one observes the Jewish law. Here's what he says. It's a different gospel. Number two, it's no gospel at all. And number three, it's a perverted gospel. And that's some of the strongest language that you're going to find in the New Testament concerning the gospel. And Paul's fervor is aroused because the integrity of Christ as the unique Savior securing the only salvation is in jeopardy. They are forsaking Christ in the gospel for something that's very false. Now the question comes, how? How could this happen? He tells us, Galatians 2, verse 4 and 5. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Galatians 2, verse 4 and 5. There are some things, brethren, that are worth standing for, and salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, is one of them. 
In Galatians 5, Paul went on to elaborate on the seriousness of adding human obedience to the work of Christ. And here's what he says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That law, you say. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified or saved by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Galatians 5, the first four verses. That's how serious. Very pointedly, brethren, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have Christ as Savior and try to save yourself through obedience to the law of Moses, be it the Ten Commandments or all the other laws or the dietary laws or whatever it is. And sometimes Christians get all torqued. They go back into the Old Testament and they say, well, this is how the holy people of old lived and this was their lifestyle and we need to adopt this and adopt that. And we start bringing it over into the New Covenant. Salvation is not a partnership. Faith in Jesus along with personal obedience to the law. It's not that. Jesus is not sharing the glory with you. He's not sharing the glory with me. If we could have saved ourselves by our obedience to the law, then the cross of Jesus was unnecessary. And it was a waste of God's precious and perfect Son. Now in our day, not many Judaizers are advocating faith in Christ plus circumcision. By the way, this is circumcision as, as a spiritual rite, not as a uh, hygienic rite, which we do today. So that's what he's referring to. So we don't have many of that thing going on, but there are myriads of preachers advocating atonement for sin by the blood of Jesus if, if you, in and of yourselves, will just repent and believe. Your repentance and faith are taught as your contribution to the gospel. God has done all that He can do for you, but now the rest is up to you. It is Christ plus your faith and repentance equals salvation, and that, in essence, is the same as Christ plus circumcision. Now, the gospel does call us to repentance and faith, but it teaches that these necessary attributes to apprehend Jesus are the gifts of God Himself and not of ourselves, lest we boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8. And I've heard the boast. I'm sure you have too. I've heard people say, yes, Jesus died, but I had to believe. I had to believe. And it's said almost just like that. Brethren, if you truly believe that you are in partnership with Jesus by your repentance and faith in His work, then you have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace just as surely as if you were counting on ceremonial circumcision to fit you for glory. That is how serious this is. 
You are not a partner in your salvation. You are a recipient. You are a beneficiary. And therein we boast. Yeah, there's room for boasting. But not about our right decisions, but about the Savior who in love drew us to Himself. We sang it in the hymn. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's Lamb. He's the one that gets the glory. So there's no partnership. Grace means you didn't deserve it. You don't earn it. You don't do your part and God does His part. God does it all. And if we do repent and believe, and surely we do, it's because He has granted us those graces from a living heart. Secondly, no penance. This is but the flip side to no partnership. Because penance has the idea of paying for your own sin, primarily to keep you saved or to assure your salvation by making up for sinful failures. It's not found in the Bible, but it comes right out of the Roman Catholic playbook. Let me read it for you from the Baltimore Confession of the Roman Church. Penance is a sacrament. It's a way to get saved in which the sins committed after baptism are forgiven. Penance remits, the word remits means to release from guilt, a penalty. Penance remits sins, the eternal punishment, and at least some of the temporal punishment due to sin. The sacrament of penance remits sin and restores the friendship of God to the soul by means of the absolution of the priest. Absolution means to forgive or pardon and comes from the words, I absolve thee, etc., spoken by the priest. Baltimore Catechism, which is Roman Catholic Catechism. The penance assigned by the priest might be prayers, fasting, giving of alms to the poor, reciting the rosary, so many Hail Marys, paying for indulgences, doing works of mercy, on and on it goes. Dr. C.D. Cole, former pastor of Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto, wrote this. So good. The basic fatal error of Romanism is the denial, get it now, the denial of the sufficiency of Christ. It denies the efficacy of His sacrifice on the cross. Let me give it to you in layman's terms what he's saying. The cross wasn't good enough. The cross wasn't complete enough. That's what Dr. Cole is saying here. He goes on. What He did on Calvary must be repeated in the Mass and supplemented, there's your plus, through works of penance. And this makes priestcraft and sacramentarianism necessary, the sacraments. He goes on, Romanism is a complicated system of salvation by works. It has salvation to sell, but not on Isaiah's terms, without money and without price, Isaiah 55 verse 1. It offers salvation on the installment plan. 
and then sees to it that the poor sinner is always behind in his payments so that when he dies, there's a large balance unpaid. And he must continue payments by suffering in purgatory or until the debt is paid by prayers or alms or suffering from his living relatives and friends. The whole system and plan calls for merit and money from the cradle to the grave and even beyond. Surely the wisdom that drew such a plan of salvation is not from above, that is, it's not from God, but is earthly and sensual, end quote. This works on the conscience of those who feel guilty about their sin and who do not feel forgiven. But we have learned in this study, in this series, that forgiveness is based on truth, not feelings. Truth first, feeling second. And to this I would add that the feelings never trump the truth. You don't put the feelings over the truth. The truth is what it is, whether you feel it to be so or not. Well, then it brings the question, what is the truth about forgiveness? What is the truth about the work of Christ on the cross? Well, over against penance... The Bible declares, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and He, God, will have mercy on him. Turn to our God, for He will, get it now, freely pardon. Freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Now, brethren, this is repentance, not penance. This is forsaking sin, not paying God off. And the result is that God will freely pardon, no cost to you. Verse 1 is appropriate here too. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, you come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. That's free. You get all the benefits and you don't pay thing. Now how thorough is God's pardon for sin when we come to Him through Christ? Scripture says, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And Hebrews 8, verse 13 lists this as a provision of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Micah asks the question, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of His inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, verse 18 and 19. And the writer of Hebrews words it this way in chapter 10, verse 11 and following. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. That is, the animal sacrifices. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, just one, he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever. Forever. Those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First He says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then He adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And then he makes this statement. Where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10, 11 through 18. No penance, no payments, no personal suffering necessary. No sacrifice on your part. It's been paid for by Christ. You know, sometimes I think we are better Roman Catholics than we are Christians. We live in ways that amount to a practical refutation of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, His sacrifice, His mercy, His forgiveness. Brethren, let me say it boldly. You do not pay anything for your sins, not a dime. We sing it in the hymn. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and He washed it white as snow. And the great sin here is when we have the audacity to believe that our puny contributions of self-abasement or self-denial or humiliation add something to the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. Ascetics beat their bodies or they hurt their bodies believing that such temporal infliction of pain somehow atones for sin. Well, it doesn't. It adds to sin. It says, Jesus, I do not believe that your sacrifice paid for all of my sins. I think there is a balance on the account that I must clear myself. And if you think that, you are thinking wrong. And if you think that, you misunderstand the gospel and you do not know salvation by grace. We come very close to the Galatian error of a perverted gospel when we begin to think that the sins committed after conversion, Roman Catholics would say after baptism, must be atoned for through good works. Abstinence is often the Protestant version of penance. We list as vices the mores of our Protestant fundamentalism. No alcoholic beverages, no movies, no dancing, no playing cards, no gambling. 
and the holiest of other things. And we believe that by not doing these things, we are somehow holy, somehow more saved than if we leaned on Jesus alone. I'm telling you, that's dangerously close to being severed from Christ and falling from grace. However necessary it is to live holy lives, and it is necessary because the Scripture says without holiness, no one is going to see the Lord. However necessary, let us not trust in personal abstinence as our badge of holiness, but on Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now that brings us then to the last point in the outline, forgiveness because we're cleansed. And under that, firstly note that there's no counting of our sin against us. We have it. We have sin. I'm not saying that. But it's not counted against us. We've been looking a little bit as, in illustration-wise at the life of David and particularly his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. But David, in his first psalm that he wrote about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, wrote this. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans 4, verse 8, and he indicates that this is how God deals with our sin. Because of Christ and His sacrifice, those who trust their case to Jesus have their sins paid for in full. Their sin does not count against them. It's legal jargon with a spiritual overtone. Think of the ledger book maintained by Marley who worked for Scrooge. He under Scrooge's direction kept the accounts right down to the last penny of every poor person who ever had the misfortune of dealing with Ebenezer. No mercy, no extension of payments due, no forgiveness of the debt. They owed it, the ledger showed it, it's on the account. There was no recourse except to pay or end up in debtor's prison. This is the rule of the law. The law of God will never show you mercy. Not ever. It will not pay your debt. It can only demand justice. And there's plenty of debt on the ledger book under your name. But along comes God, and because of the intercession and substitution of His Son, who steps in and pays in full the debt of His believing people, those sins are not counted against you if, if you stop trying to eradicate the debt yourself and cast your total burden, your total debt on Christ. It's all or nothing. But observe, God does not simply forgive the debt. He pays the debt. The sins on your ledger are moved to Christ's ledger. The books have to be balanced under God's justice. Someone has to pay, and if it isn't you, then who? Peter answers, He, Jesus, He Himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn, we're going to sing it today, written in 1798, and here's what he wrote. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Interest, see, you see, it's kind of that financial kind of terminology. Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died for he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? First thing in dealing with our sin is that God does not count our sin against us. He gives it to Christ. Secondly, and this is just as important, he accredits Jesus' righteousness to us. You've all heard the expression, well, you know, you have to balance the books. Or there's a discrepancy in the books. The columns, uh, they don't balance. In the most simplest of terms, books have two major columns, income and expenses. It's as simple as I can make it. And if we think about this from a spiritual perspective, expenses comprise the debt of our sin that we accumulate. That is what we owe. And income comprises the resources we have to pay the debt off. But spiritually speaking, the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. What's that? The debt killed us. It bankrupt us. We are bankrupt before God. There is no income. There is no money in the bank to pay off this debt. The puny two cents that we throw into the pot in an attempt to pay are laughable. More, they are an insult to the holy demands of a perfect and just God. We're locked away in debtor's prison with no hope of ever getting out. That's how desperate our situation is. And then along comes Jesus seeking the law, seeking the sinner whose debt of sin holds him fast with no hope of release. And he says to God the jailer, what if I take so and so sin and in exchange I give him my perfect credit rating? You can credit his or her sin to me and my righteousness to them. This is not a dream, folks. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul writes, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, it wasn't righteousness. Faith is not righteousness. But it was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, 
We're not talking about works here, are we? When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. He earned it. He gets it. It's his salary. However, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. Romans 4, verse 3 through 8. And when that occurs, this great exchange that Bridges calls it, God exchanges our sin for His righteousness. When that occurs, then we are washed clean. And so in his second psalm, dealing with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, here's what David wrote, Psalm 51. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgression. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak. You're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51, verse 2 and following. Brother, no one can improve upon this. No one can improve upon this. Penance cannot improve upon this. Self-abasement, self-torture, self-denial cannot improve upon this. It's all of Christ. We're not of all. Not at all. Do you know why the Old Testament animal sacrifices numbered into the thousands year after year? The writer of Hebrews tells us in 10 and verse 4, because, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's why. The Old Testament law was this. Let me read it for you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. The principle being here, equality of worth. Take a life, you took a life, you forfeit your life. Fair is fair. So the sacrifice of a bull, let's say, for a person or a lamb for a person is not an atonement equivalent of life for life. Think of a man found guilty of murder and he's sentenced to death. And so the defense attorney comes on the day of sentencing before the judge with the defendant's dog and he says, here, put the dog to death in compliance to the sentence. Why, he would be laughed out of court. How absurd. 
you want me to execute the dog for your murder of so-and-so. In a sense, all those animal sacrifices, by their very inferiority, were not suitable equivalents to make atonement for sin. The lambs, in particular, pointed to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, so singularly perfect, so inseparably linked to mankind by His own humanity, so sinless, spotless in His, uh, his one-time sacrifice, of offering himself satisfied God's anger once and for all. Let me read it to you. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 7 verse 27. He goes on. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, verse 12. And in verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, verse 26. You cannot add to that through penance, through partnership. The atoning sacrifices have ended. Christ is exalted and seated next to God. And the writer of Hebrews says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9, verse 28. The sacrifices, brethren, have ended. Even Christ's sacrifice, it's ended. It's finished, he said, from the cross. It's the idea that you can add to that or that you need to add to that. The idea that you need to do penance is to deny the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and to deny grace. We are saved by grace, not by works, and not by a partnership, and not by penance. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, for the gospel of grace. It's hard for us sometimes to think of ourselves as being so bankrupt, so deplete in moral goodness as to not be able to contribute to our salvation. But every other religion in the world, with the exception of the gospel of grace, true Christianity, every other religion of the world is a works system. If they believe that Christ died, they also believe that they must do their part. They think of a salvation as a partnership. What could we ever add to Christ? We cannot add to Him. But through our sinful thinking, we can take away from Him. And that is just as much sin. For every struggling heart here this morning, I pray 
that you will help them to lay aside all of their self-efforts, their congratulations that they're not as bad or as wicked as the guy down the street. Let them lay that all aside and see that there's plenty on their ledger account to condemn them to hell for eternity. But Christ comes and is willing to take those sins to himself and in exchange to give them the very righteousness of his perfect life. What could be better than that? Lord, may the devil not take away the seed of the gospel as in the parable of the sower, but may the seed find good soil this day to the glory of Christ, Savior of sinners, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.